Well, I mentioned earlier, we are going to talk to two people on the show today. Both have experiences, very recent experiences, calling uh, for an ambulance, calling for help. Something that I think, we generally think that if you are in that position in this province, that you pick up the phone, you dial the number, and you know that help is going to be on the other end. It is, but as we've been talking about on the program as well, people have been experiencing delays. We talked to Ecom on the show last week. They talked about the fact that while the people that answer the phone do stay on the line, there was a consistent delay as far as transferring people to get an ambulance. Well, my next guest has quite a story to tell as well. Sue Mark waited about an hour and a half for an ambulance, and she's joining us now to talk more about that. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. What happened to you when you you called for an ambulance? And maybe just tell us the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my mom had a bad fall, um, and we had thought maybe she had broken her hip um, and maybe fractured her arm, and she had fainted a couple of times. Um, she's older, and um, she's, you know, susceptible to sort of acute events just because of her age and, and some other health issues she has. So I phoned at about, I think it was 901 to be exact, um, and I waited for 15 minutes on a, a recording, just a looped recording. And um, eventually they they answered. Um, you know, they seemed like it was a pretty urgent call. And uh, I, I, um, I walked outside, actually, ignorantly, <laughs> to wait for the siren. And uh, almost two hours later, they, they pulled up with no siren. And um, my mom, it was kind of funny. She said, um, well, that was that was fast. Um, but she had been unconscious for most of it, oh. <laughs> so, so she didn't realize how long how long had actually passed. So um, yeah, it was it was a long wait, and the ambulance ended up. Um, we we're in Kamloops, and the ambulance actually, for some reason, got called in from Chase, which is a good thirty five minute drive, you know, unto itself. So it was a long wait. I, and I, I know you're you're kind of laughing about it now and, and looking yeah. back at it, but it, during the time, it must have been frightening to be on hold and to not know what time or when help was going to arrive. Yeah, it was pretty worrisome, and I and I did I made the comment that I would have um, just taken her myself, but if I, you know, if she had a broken hip and she's, you know, it's a it's not an easy thing to get her into a vehicle and um, do that yourself. So I was. I was in a position where, you know, if that had been any longer or if she had continued to yet lose consciousness, um, that I would have been strapped to do that or maybe asking neighbors for help to get my mom to the hospital somehow. So it was it was scary. Yeah, and kind of goes against what we we're always told too, isn't it? That when someone's hurt, don't touch them and don't move them for fear that we can make it worse. Exactly. Yeah. So you're you're in a position where you're sort of you have to decide whether you're going to act like the the ambulance and the medical uh, attendants just in the you know the the chance that this could be a life saving one hour. You know, it's pretty scary when you think you you may have that golden hour to save somebody and there is nobody there to help you. And um, I don't blame the ambulance attendants. They were amazing, but um, there's something wrong with the system right now that's for sure it didn't like I made in my comment didn't feel didn't feel like I was in Canada because like you say you you call 911 and somebody is usually there within minutes and it was hours 
Uh, we talked to a paramedic, the head of the paramedics union on the program yesterday uh, about the delays and what they're dealing with on the, on when they're out and responding to calls as well. And like you said, I don't think there are people out there that are, are blaming paramedics and certainly we, sh- we shouldn't be blaming paramedics in this case. But what did they say when they arrived? They must have known that you'd been waiting for quite some time. Uh, they didn't seem like they they had any idea. Um, I said I told them when they got here, you know, it I must be a busy night for you guys. And they said, oh, it's not too bad. And I said, really? I said, because I, I, it was almost 11 when they finally left with my mom in the ambulance. And um, just after 11, actually, and I, like I said, I, t- I told them I'd called at 9. And they said, well, we didn't even get dispatched from Chase until 10. And then it's, like I say, a 35-minute drive to Kamloops from Chase. So it, it's almost like there was you know, a huge communication problem happening that they didn't know that I had called that early. They just kind of go where they're sent. So there's something something wrong with the middleman, I guess. Yeah, because you would expect, I would think, in that scenario, when they get there, uh, you would expect them to be saying, oh, so sorry, we've been run off our feet. There were so many calls tonight and we yeah. got here as soon as we could. Yeah, it didn't seem like that. And when we got to emergency, it, it wasn't a busy night. I mean, I've been there before. Um, where you've waited, you know, six hours. And unfortunately, you know, in the news lately, we've had um, a woman pass away while waiting in the waiting room. Um, the parking lot is usually jam-packed and there is nowhere to park, even if you have an emergency that you're bringing in. And it wasn't busy that night. So like I say, it's not like it with the ambulances were busy. The hospital didn't seem to be busy. It was, it was the call center that seemed to be the sort of missing link there. So when you got to the hospital with your mom, were things okay then as far as she got the care she needed and how, or how is she doing now? Yes, she's, she's great. She was, I mean, in and out there, by the time I got there, she had been into x-ray, she'd had blood work and um, given some medication and I was able to bring her home. So um, like you say, it's, it's hard to imagine that we're saying uh, in this circumstance that boy, we're sure lucky, but we, we got lucky. And sadly, some people, um, have much, much worse results from from this problem right now. Uh, we've reached out to, to emergency health services to get a reaction or to talk more about uh, the wait times because you're not the only person in BC that's oh. experienced this. Have you reached out or are you looking for answers as to, to what happened? Like you said, it seemed to be that there was a communication breakdown. Yes, and I, I haven't heard back from anybody. I'll, I posted it to uh, a social media and got... Uh, hundreds and hundreds of responses and other stories about the same thing happening, um, people going to emergency and taking themselves and then being called back by um, emergency health services to see if they still needed an ambulance hours later, which I find absolutely unbelievable. So it's, um, yeah, not, nothing I've got any answers to yet, but I have gotten a lot of empathy and sympathy and uh, sadly a lot of worse stories that I've heard. Uh, yeah, and that's got to be eye-opening too, the fact that so many people now are coming out saying, hey, wait a minute, we had something similar happen. Yes, yeah, you hear it more and more. And honestly, in a, in a town like this, this isn't a giant town, it's, it's one of those things where you kind of hear about it happening in the bigger centres, maybe the lower mainland, but it's, it's everywhere at this point. So that's what's um, kind of always something that's kind of someone else's problem and something you don't have to worry about until you have to worry about it. And that's what happened to us this weekend. 
It must be too. I mean, like you said, you're in Kamloops, which not a huge city, but it's also, I mean, it is a place that's got an, uh, a hospital. It's got a big community. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't expect, uh, not that you would expect lengthy delays or two or three hour waits for an ambulance, but at least if you were in a very remote location, you could understand why there would be difficulty perhaps or a delay, but not in, in a place, like you said, that, that's the size of Kamloops. Yeah, not here. And honestly, not with the... Um it, it didn't look to be that busy. Uh, so I'm, I'm like, I don't know where everybody was, and I'm not sure why ambulances were called from other towns to deal with emergencies in Kamloops. That's another thing that's, that's a little worrisome, is we, sh- we should have the, the number of emergency services. And like I say, it didn't seem to be a, a big, busy night. So I'm, I'm not sure where the breakdown was. But, yeah, the smaller centres, you, you have to worry even more for them because they've got a long trip to get to a hospital and ours is minutes away. What was it like when you were on hold? Because we've talked with Ecom about this as well. One of the big problems is people, uh, I think it's kind of second nature, or they hang up when they get the recording thinking, oh, if I call back, it'll be faster. And Ecom has said, please don't do that because it jams up more phone lines and it makes the wait actually longer. But what was it like mm-hmm. when you were calling for urgent care and, and hearing that recording? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, I thought I heard you say earlier that the there's somebody on the line with you. Um, when I phoned in and somebody um, eventually answered and patched me through to the ambulance end of things, um, there was a, just an ongoing recording. But the, the first person who answered did say, make sure you stay on the line with me, with me, and um, it, it'll be much faster to get through that way. And I had seen on the news that People were tying up the line, so I knew to just sit there and wait um, and hoping that somebody did eventually answer on the other end because after 15 minutes, it's just kind of second nature to say, I'll just, I'll redial, I'll try again because obviously the, the call has been dropped and I'm just in, you know, phone cyberspace somewhere. There, there isn't anybody there. So I, I can see why people are, are coping that way. Right. Well, well, good on you for, for staying on the line. And I'm happy to hear that your mom is doing okay and, and ended up as she did get the help and the care that she needed. Uh, we're going to yep. continue talking about this. But Sue, thank you so much for joining us to talk more yep. about what happened to you. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, as you heard mentioned in the COVID-19 update just a few moments ago, Health Minister Adrian Dix went through a lot of numbers when it comes to the workers that we currently have in long-term care facilities and assisted living facilities, the percentage of workers that are fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, and the numbers of people who are still not vaccinated. He also talked about contingency plans in place for this scenario and what happens next. Well, we wanted to check in and see how things are looking in long-term care and joining us now to talk more about that is Terry Lake, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, How are things going today, today being the first day where that vaccine mandate is in effect? Well, Jill, uh, we were extremely concerned about today uh, because there have been staff members who said, you know, they were not going to get vaccinated and it was very hard to know what that quantum would be. Um, surveying our members this morning extensively, we find that um, the the worst case scenarios have been avoided, and I think that's largely in part because of the the change in the public health officer order to allow partially vaccinated workers to continue to work with rapid testing before each shift. 
But we are seeing some uh, homes that have anywhere from five to nine of their staff members uh, refusing to take the, even the first dose and so have been put on unpaid leave. And so this has caused, you know, a lot of stress and strain on uh, obviously other frontline workers that have to fill in uh, to do overtime work uh, to make sure we're moving people around to, to uh, ensure that our seniors get the care they deserve. So if you're talking about a facility where five to nine employees have been put, as of today, put on unpaid leave, what kind of a strain, though, does that put on the facility? It really depends on the types of positions. But in one case, for instance, it was almost exclusively nurses, uh, either licensed practical nurses or registered nurses. And that really hampers the ability because obviously they are supervising the care aides, uh, who do the bulk of the of the activities of daily living uh, duties with our residents? So, for uh, you know, any nursing home that loses two or three uh, LPNs or registered nurses, that can have a tremendous impact. Adrian Dix walked through some of the numbers. He put a lot of numbers out there, but in in long term care, I was jotting them down. It sounded like there were still and province wide uh, seventeen hundred thirty two people that were not vaxxed. Similar numbers when looking at assisted living and looking at other other health facilities. So are, are you surprised by that number? By that, that there are still that many, or no? Not really. I mean, we did surveys, uh, you know, about a month ago and repeated it uh, two weeks ago after doing a a webinar on this. And, um, you know, we did find up to 10 percent of of staff were at risk of of not showing up to work. Again, that changed uh, as the extension was created to allow people to work with one one dose. And so that was helpful. So, you know, some people have made the decision to become vaccinated. And fortunately, um, you know, uh, we're rewarding that this decision to do the right thing by allowing them to continue to work with rapid testing. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the each operator has yet to receive the reports uh, of how many people are vaccinated in each of their sites. This was information that was supposed to be provided by a, a portal that was set up by the ministry. And for one reason or another, technical uh, issues, I, I presume, uh, those reports, uh, as of last week anyway, were not available to our members. Uh, so there seems to be some confusion on the rules. And even earlier today, it, I, I think on social media, the information was put out that as of today, workers in long-term care have to be fully vaccinated. But So that's not actually the case, though. If you have one dose, you can still get a test and still keep your job. That's correct. Uh, If you have one dose, uh, you have 28 to 35 days to receive your second dose. You would have to undergo rapid testing and wear a mask. Uh, And the same holds true for visitors. And uh, I did uh, see an unfortunate tweet by uh, the provincial government saying visitors had to have two doses as of today. And I just want to assure families that, you know, have just started their vaccine series that they can, in fact, continue to visit, but must complete their series over the next few weeks. So, um, you know, that's that's important information. So much has been changing that I know it's hard to keep everything straight. We were working through the weekend, uh, and I know the ministry staff have been working tremendously hard to try to clarify and, and get all this information out to people. But, yes, if you have one dose, you can continue to work, you can continue to visit uh, with the added precautions in place. Uh, that's a pretty big change or, or difference, uh, I would think, for people that maybe saw that news or saw that information and suddenly thought that they were going to be cut off. 
Yeah, and again, uh, you know, it's been changing so much. And if anything we know about this virus is that, uh, you know, we have to adapt to it as it adapts to the human population, it becomes more transmissible. We have to change policies. And uh, so this is being done quickly. And, uh, you know, it's a large bureaucracy. And sometimes uh, that causes uh, problems. Uh, we, we enjoy a very close working relationship with the ministry. Um, I wish we had the same kind of close working relationship with the provincial health officer's office, uh, because I think that's critical in terms of seniors care. And we've seen that gap between uh, the PHO and the seniors advocates office as well. And I, I think when we're looking at the most vulnerable sector, um, we should have closer communications uh, in the sector. Uh, you mentioned the portal, uh, and we'll talk a bit more about that, but I'm just wanting to to ask you, how is it being so, as of today, with all staff members in long-term care having to be uh, fully vaccinated, or we know they, they do have some time then if they have one dose and then take those measures with the rapid test, is it self-reporting or is it more like the vaccine passport that people are using to get into restaurants? Is there something scanned where their health records records are actually being checked? Well, uh, operators spent hours and sometimes, uh, in some cases, days uploading information over the last month. So every staff member's name, uh, date of birth, personal health number into a portal created by the ministry. There were uh, a lot of issues with the portal so that um, that information wasn't being uploaded very easily. Um, but all of that, uh, you know, information should be there. Uh, so you should be able to put in someone's name and their personal health number and uh, determine whether or not they have been vaccinated. If there is an issue with the portal, then operators were told to use the vaccine uh, card that uh, that the general public uses. And certainly we can use that for visitors uh, that need to have at least one dose of vaccine as well. But if the portal's not working properly and, say, a healthcare worker doesn't have the card handy on their phone or with them, what happens but says, no, no, it's fine, I'm vaccinated? What happens in a scenario like that? Well, if there's any uh, doubt whether a person is vaccinated, uh, they would not be allowed to, to, to continue to work on the site as of today. Um, if there was, you know, if there was strong evidence that they had, in fact, received their first vaccine, then they would be rapid tested and be wearing a mask for their shift. Uh, but uh, again, the the portal um, hopefully will be fully functional. Uh, the vaccine card, though, you know, is being used by everyone in the public and certainly at many, many businesses and seems to be uh, fairly easy to use. And so for visitors, and I would argue for those staff where, that haven't been uploaded into the portal, uh, that, uh, that will be sufficient to use. Uh, do you know of any cases then where workers at this point have been put on unpaid leave? Yes, uh, quite a number around the province. So, you know, we have a site in Kamloops, for instance, where uh, I believe five workers were put on unpaid leave uh, in Kelowna, one site with seven, uh, in Abbotsford, one site with nine. Uh, so it, it does vary by site, but um, uh, absolutely there have been a probably uh, over 100 uh, workers or more across the province that have been put on unpaid leave as of, as of today. And, and what do you see the end game being there in that clearly these are workers that have had the opportunity to get vaccinated, to be immunized, have chosen not to, knew that today was coming, that it would be a requirement. Do they go on unpaid leave indefinitely and hope the rules change or what happens in these scenarios? 
Well, hard to understand why someone would not be vaccinated when they're in the healthcare profession. Uh, but uh, yeah, for it depends on the collective bargaining agreement that's in place. But for most operators, they're providing a 42-day uh, unpaid uh, leave of absence, and uh, then staff members can make a decision to begin their vaccine. And uh, once they have their first dose after seven days, they would be able to return to work uh, with uh, with rapid testing until they completed their series. Uh, but that will only go uh, until, uh, you know, really about another month or so. And then people will lose their jobs entirely. And, you know, the Health Employers Association of BC will be managing a lot of the labor relations impact uh, that, uh, that will uh, come out of, of these actions. But, you know, we as an association and as operators uh, are, are caring for uh, thousands of, uh, of vulnerable uh, British Columbians around the province. We support mandatory vaccination. It's the best way to keep people safe, both the uh, team members and uh, the people for whom we care. Is it a distraction at this point or I guess kind of a, an unnecessary sidebar in that are we looking at a scenario then if somebody goes on the 42 day unpaid leave of absence at 42 days, if nothing has changed, they're dismissed. Are you then worried about lawsuits or employees taking some kind of legal action? Well, that's always a risk. But, uh, you know, in our close uh, working relationship with the Ministry of Health, we've been assured that, um, you know, the legal uh, the, the legal defense of this kind of a policy is very, very strong. Um, you know, the Human Rights Commission has uh, has also come out with a similar position in terms of uh, people's choice. This is a public health order. This isn't this isn't optional. This is essentially the law of the land. And so, you know, uh, people aren't exempt from that unless they they can make an appeal uh, on medical grounds not to receive the vaccine. And there is a process in place for that as well. And how are family members responding as far as using that vaccine card like many people have been doing in other places, restaurants, gyms and kinds of things? What's the response been from family? Well, families um, and friends uh, that visit their loved ones in care have always been at the highest echelon of, uh, of being safe. Uh, throughout the pandemic, they have uh, made sure that they were keeping themselves safe so that they could continue as an essential visitor when restrictions were high or as a social visitor when they were relaxed. They don't want to put their loved ones at risk. And as we saw with the uh, Seniors Advocate report, there was only perhaps one case in assisted living that was brought in by a visitor. So they are, you know, they are using the vaccine card extensively uh, and uh, certainly not objecting to the fact that they need to be vaccinated in order to to, uh, visit their loved ones in long-term care. All right, Terry Lake, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for being with us today and providing us this update. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, as the temperature gets colder and we get closer to winter, a lot of ski resorts in this province are gearing up for another season, albeit it will look a little different than other seasons. But what are they doing as far as staffing the mountains? Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Michael Ballingall, Senior VP with Sales and Marketing at Big White Ski Resort. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure to be on your program this afternoon. Well, I think last time you were on, we were talking about a big staff party and some problems with that. That was several several months ago. Uh, this is slightly more optimistic, but how are things going as far as getting staff in place, ready to open? It's funny, you know, this time last week, um, and, and every week brings a different scenario. But uh, with, with we, you know, we're very nervous, and we, we are today. 
um, as is most people in in the industry that aren't close to a big city like Vancouver. Um, It it takes, in a normal year, about 1,200 staff for us to ramp up our part of the the resort. This year, we're looking for just over 600 staff. So we're already down by 50% to to offer the the business that we want to offer. Um, We're somewhere about 250, 260 now. We had 30 people over the weekend except jobs. Uh, You know, with snow on the Coquihalla and the storms that came, I think people saw that on the news and they realized that winter is going to come. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, the April 23rd is the big deadline for, you know, the subsidy from the government to, uh, to stop. So I think people are starting to look at they need to get a job. And right now, a great place to find a job is in one of the ski resorts in British Columbia. Uh, still a low number, though. If you're saying you're at 250, 260 right now, that's still less than half of the staff you need. Yeah, it's it's not a normal year by any means. I mean, it, you know, normally we would have five to six thousand applications for twelve hundred jobs. Um, you know, a, a chef, for example, you get forty to, to fifty applications. We have six um, ski school trainers, so those are the best ski instructors in the country training other ski instructors. It's a high-paying job. Um, we we've had an application in the industry since September the fourth haven't had a application and and normally that would be filled probably from a a foreign temporary worker um, someone coming from australia or from europe from austria from switzerland or even the united states Um, it's just there's there's not enough ski instructors to go around in canada without using these temporary foreign worker visas or working holiday visas and so is the issue traveling and the fact that international travel really hasn't picked up quite yet yeah, the issue is all really stacking up against each other. I mean, if you look at, you know, the government bureaucracy, the federal government who process the visas, there's a backlog here in Canada and in some of the other countries that are three to four months. I mean, for example, New South Wales and Australia has been on lockdown. They've just come out of lockdown the last 48 hours. Our consulate over there has been closed. You can't get your fingerprints done. You can't get your biometrics done for your visa application. That has to be done in that country. Um, so, so these are all things that we're starting to run into that uh, we're really running out of time. And what we're asking the government to do now is turn on the visas that have or expired or that will expire during the ski season. And we think there's a couple of hundred, if not thousands, of employees right across Canada that would like to stay here, would like to work, but their visas have either expired or are about to expire. And we think that that would serve well for the ski industry to turn those visa applications back on. But again, you know, the cabinet hasn't been posted yet. Um, we're knocking on a few doors, but there's not a lot of answers. Are you confident at all that there will be some resolution to that or you might get that then before the start of the season? Confident is not a word that I would use. Begging is a word that I would use. Um, we, we've hired, uh, the industry has hired a lobby company in Ottawa who are on the ground who see um, these candidates that are arriving, these elected officials. Um, we're writing letters. We're writing emails. We're talking to you and your listeners who understand that, that lots of industries are looking for employees right now. This is just not unique to the ski industry. It's, it's the hospitality industry, hotels. Everybody's looking for employees. So we're hoping when the CERB expires and people start to think about where can I go get a fun job, because, you know, working in the snow is great, but uh, those also turn into jobs in, in the wine industry in the summer, the golf courses, 
um, renting boats on the lake, teaching surfing over in Tofino. Hospitality and tourism is a great career to have. It's just people have to make a decision and sign on. Right. You mentioned CERB. Do you think that is playing a role in that people are still on CERB or still on the CERB equivalent and that's making it so they don't want to come back to work? Huge. We, we know that people are sitting on the sidelines. They, they, uh, they, they, even last year and, and this summer when we were looking for staff, you know, when you're paying fifteen, fifty, sixteen dollars an hour, $22 for a line cook, um, and they're making the equivalent of that staying at home, um, well, then why would I come work at 5,500 feet above sea level and live in the mountains? Truly, it, it's a passion for those people that come and work in the industry that I'm in. Um, up in the mountains, you, you really want to be up here. But, you know, you have other, uh, uh, you know, people in the industry that are looking for for hospitality people. Uh, you've got McDonald's that's probably got a job ad out front of every one of their restaurants in British Columbia, and they're paying way above minimum wage of what they used to pay. So if you're not interested in coming to the mountains, there's a job for you in the city where you currently live or reside, whether you're at home with mom and dad, family or friends. Um, there's lots of jobs out there. We're competing for them, and uh, and sliding on snow isn't enough to get them over the line. So, you know, we, we have to have staff accommodation, a very healthy wage, benefits uh, on food and beverage, on skiing and snowboarding. We offer free lessons. We offer 50% off equipment. I mean, it, it's, it's a very healthy package. You just got to find someone that wants to take you up on your offer. Right. What about safety and protocols that are in place? I would imagine, is there a requirement for staff to be vaccinated? 100% at, at Big White Ski Resort for, for our staff. And, you know, that, that, that's bowing well because people feel comfortable. If you look at what the percentages are and you just follow the science, and it's not the time to get into debate upon this, but the people that work for us, they were already vaccinated. Out of the 153 current employees that we have on our payroll, full-time employees, only six didn't want to get vaccinated. Three subsequently have, and only three are going to move on. And so those numbers are very healthy for us. But people wanting to come and work with us, they're inquiring if they have to be vaccinated. When we say yes, they feel very comfortable. They know exactly where they're going to live, who they're going to be living with. They know they're going to be in a safe environment where their people are double vaccinated. Now that uh, everybody five and above entering the buildings are going to have to wear a mask, you're going to have to be double vaccinated to get into all our lodges that have a liquor license. So, you know, when 80, 85, 90% of the population by the time we open will probably be double vaccinated, unfortunately, that'll make it very, very um, uh, well for the people that are double vaccinated and unfortunate for those that aren't because you're going to have to uh, use the outdoor washrooms and probably eat in your car because you're not going to be able to get into any of the buildings. Uh, interesting. I, I wanted to, to get clarification on that. So for patrons coming, because as far as I was reading the rules, it doesn't, the vaccine certificate doesn't apply to hotels or in that scenario, but it sounds like it will apply then to, to those restaurants and different places at Big White. All our day lodges have a license and under the rules that we've been made aware of as late as 11 o'clock this morning, um, that you will have to check for the B.C. Uh, vaccination passport, the BC vaccination card, uh, to enter those buildings with a license. Um, that's where most of our washrooms are. So last year, for example, we built outdoor washrooms and positioned them around the mountain. So people are used to that, that are not vaccinated. There will be uh, a facility for them to use. 
And a lot of people were, well, most of our buildings were closed last year, so they were already car camping and eating in their cars. So the, those that aren't vaccinated are going to have to um, either go back to the rooms that they've rented or they're going to have to go back to their cars. And we're really talking about day visitors. All right. Uh, when is opening day scheduled for? Well, it's, it's Thursday of the American Thanksgiving, so that's Thursday, November the 25th. It's already snowed on the mountain a couple of times. Everybody tells me the Almanac says it's going to be a great year. The uh, people with bad knees says my knees are already getting so sore. And it's going to snow on the local mountains in the lower mainland this week. So everybody get your skis out, get them waxed up and tuned up and start doing the exercises because the ski season is coming to Supernatural British Columbia. All the resorts are excited to get going again. All right. Well, Michael, I hope you find more staff. We'll check in with you maybe closer to uh, the opening day. But thanks so much for joining us once again. Love to talk to you and hope your listeners and your staff are well and had a great Thanksgiving. Well, many people, if you didn't see them in person, maybe you were on social media or you saw it on various news programs. I know they were on the Global News Morning Show today as well, talking about all of those photos of the Northern Lights. Only in this scenario, you didn't have to be all that far north. Many people in the Lower Mainland and Metro Vancouver looked and saw them off in the distance. So what made it so the Northern Lights were visible all the way down south? Let's bring in Scott Young. He's the planetarium astronomer at the Manitoba Museum. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. No problem, Jill. Nice to be here. Well, this was quite the treat for people who were gazing into the night sky last night. What was it that caused the Northern Lights to be visible? Yeah, we had a great outburst of Northern Lights yesterday, uh, pretty much straight through the night and then into this morning. And uh, it's just one of those things where... Um, the, the causes of the northern lights are kind of a, a variable event. The stuff coming from the sun will hit our atmosphere. And if there's enough energy and enough factors are right, you get the northern lights. And if there's even more energy, that pushes the northern lights farther south. Now, for folks in, um, in B.C., I think it's probably pretty rare to see them down there unless you're, unless you're quite far north. But here in Manitoba, we'll see them in Winnipeg you know, fairly often. It all has to do with sort of the uh, the positioning related to the magnetic pole. But all of those factors all lined up last night, and we just had a great view. So pretty well anywhere the sky was clear in Canada had a really, really nice view. It's, it's kind of a, a nice thought to think that everybody in the country, if they were outside and looking up, were kind of looking at the same thing. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the great things about astronomy. I mean, the, the sky is there for everyone, and uh, it doesn't matter where you are, you're, you're looking at the same kinds of things. Uh, it's often referred to as well, or it's called a, a solar flare event. What specifically are we looking at that makes these lights? So the sun is basically a big nuclear explosion that is constantly exploding. And so it's sending out lots of heat and lots of light, which we're familiar with the, from the sun, but also a bunch of pretty harmful radiation. And luckily, we live on a planet, the Earth, with an atmosphere that shields all of us from that. None of that... Um, harmful radiation makes it down to the ground. It's all sort of trapped in the upper atmosphere. And the magnetic field of the Earth actually sort of pushes that towards the North Pole and the South Pole. So all this energy sort of collects around the North Pole and the South Pole, and it makes the air glow in the dark. And that's what causes the northern lights. When there's a big burst of energy all at once, like a solar flare like we had a couple of days ago, when that material gets to the Earth, it really overloads the atmosphere around the North Pole, and it gives us this big burst of, of activity. And so you see not only brighter northern lights, 
but very colorful ones, ones that change and, and sort of um, they look kind of like a flag blowing in the wind, actually, sometimes. It's a, it's a really beautiful sight. And when we look at them and even looking at some of the pictures posted from Chilliwack, from Vancouver, uh, even f- farther north in uh, the province, uh, they're always kind of that green hue. What is it that makes them green? Yeah, so the, the green is actually the color of the gases in our atmosphere. That, um, that's the color that they glow in the dark. And so you wind up with uh, usually green, and that's the one that most people see most often because our eyes are, are pretty sensitive to green light. But sometimes you'll also see purple or um, sort of a reddish pink color, maybe even blue. And those are from different gases in the atmosphere, the, the oxygen, the nitrogen. Each of those atoms sort of gives off its own characteristic color when it glows under these conditions. And so that's what we're seeing when you see all those beautiful colors. And you mentioned to the the time of year that that this was, and as we know, this happened last night. Is it to do with temperature and season, or how much of a role does that play? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. the The temperature and the season don't affect the northern lights directly, but they do affect whether we get to see them or not. And so, in the fall time, um, often you've got some some decent skies. It's getting dark earlier. It's not, um, you know, like in the summertime, it doesn't really get dark till 10, 11 o'clock and, and not as many people will necessarily notice them. Um, there is a slight increase uh, in the northern lights in the fall, just based on the way the earth goes around the sun and so on. But that's not the, the biggest thing. Sometimes it's, it's just luck that we happen to get a really good event where it's very big and active and it's clear across large portions of the country and it's dark at that time and so on. All these factors sort of line up and uh, sometimes it's as much luck as anything else. (laughs) So for people then that maybe didn't see this in person last night are looking at the photos, what are the chances of a repeat performance? Well, earlier today we were thinking that, that we might see this again tonight. The, the um, predictions for that are fading a little bit. You never know. You might um, see it tonight. But more importantly, you can actually find Northern Lights forecasts online. There's a couple of different websites. The, I use spaceweatherlive.com that basically gives a sort of a you know 24 and 48 hour forecast for your location. And um, so you put that together with your local weather report to see if it's going to be clear. And you can even sign up for text alerts and things like that so that they, they send you a text when, you, uh, when northern lights are happening. The, the best way to see northern lights, though, is to just go out a whole bunch and look at the sky. And sometimes you'll see northern lights. Most times you won't, but you'll see other things. You'll see shooting stars or the supermoon or the Milky Way or planets or whatever. You really never miss out if you go out and look at the sky. (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it. Uh, Can we still only call them the northern lights, though, when we're looking from the southern part of the province or the country and seeing the same things? Yeah, you know, it's it's all good to call it the northern lights. There's a a parallel one, the southern lights that were visible from... um, Australia and uh, southern South, South America and so on. So it's still technically the northern lights. It's in the northern half of the uh, of the Earth. But uh, yeah, sometimes I've been having to look south to see them just because they have been uh, been so active and covering the entire sky. So at, at times like that, the name doesn't matter. You just sort of sit there with your with your jaw open and your eyes wide open and, and just soak it all up. Do, do the southern lights look as impressive? Do they look the same, or can we boast that the the northern lights are better? 
Well, you know, I think that the southern lights are probably about the same, but they don't cover as much populated areas, so not as many people will see them. So I, I, I think more people will see the northern lights and uh, and be able to, to share that. So it's really bringing more people together around the country and around the world. I mean, folks in Japan, folks across uh, Asia and uh, Europe, we're all seeing this as well. So, so for you as an astronomer, is, is this an exciting event as well? Or do, do you share the excitement that people did that went out and just happened to catch this last night or, or not as much since this is what you do for a living? Well, you know, the Northern Lights, we haven't really had a, a, a lot of them recently. They were very prominent in the 90s and then they sort of faded away for a while. The sun has a cycle that sort of goes up and down and uh, we were sort of near the minimum for a while. Now it's building back up again. So it's nice to see Northern Lights again. Um, I do envy the folks that just go out and, and aren't expecting anything and suddenly see this amazing green fire in the sky. It must be like the some of the first people who were looking at the sky thousands of years ago where we didn't know about, you know, atmospheres and nuclear uh, explosions and things like that. And we just knew about what we could see. There's there's a mystery to it and a beauty of it and, and probably a little bit of of fear, too, when you see the sky turn all green like that. That's pretty cool. If you discover it yourself, I think that's uh, one of the greatest um, greatest experiences you can have. Yeah, I think I think you're right in saying that there's probably an element of fear, especially if you were going out there and, and didn't know if it was an alien attack or what you were looking at. Well, yeah, we've had people that have, uh, you know, back in the, again, in the 90s when it was really um, bright and really, really common, people would be calling in and saying, oh, there's a fire just over there that's lighting up the whole sky or, or things like that, because it would literally be so bright you couldn't even see past it to the stars. And so I was actually doing my astronomy degree at that time and, and we would be out there and it's like, oh no, Northern Lights again, we can't do our project. I guess we'll just have to lie here and watch the Northern Lights. So <laughs> it, was, it was pretty sweet, I got to say. Yeah, not, not such a hardship. Um, can you give yeah, us the, exactly. the website again for people who maybe are interested in the text alerts or, or keeping track and hoping to catch these the next time? Sorry, where is the best place or where can people do that? Well, we've got all that stuff uh, centralized on our, uh, I work at the Manitoba Museum's Planetarium, so we're at manitobamuseum.ca. And in the planetarium section, there's a link to spaceweatherlive.com, and there's some uh, resources on how to, uh, how to use your cell phone to photograph the aurora and all that kind of stuff. So you can check us out there. All right. Thank you so much for this. I know a lot of people, myself included, just had so many questions about what was going on and would it happen again. So thank you so much for joining us to answer those. No problem. Thanks for having me.